David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. We're going to have another great show today. We're going to have former Los Angeles Dodger coach and Cubs manager. He also played a little baseball back in the 50s with the Giants, Joey Malfitano, and a former San Francisco 49er. He played on those great San Francisco teams in the early to mid-80s. Randy Cross, I'm David Spada here. For those of you who don't know, my co-host Elliot Harris hasn't been with us for the last six weeks. The reason being, very sad news, his daughter passed away on April 1st. If you go to ElliotHarris.com, Elliot wrote a couple very touching articles about his daughter. He also has a foundation set up for his daughter's child, who she was adopting, his two-and-a-half-year-old Tyler. So if you want to take a look, I mean, those articles just brought me to tears. But again, Elliot hopes to be back with us soon. But again, Elliot, you and your family are in our prayers. But let's get right to an interview I did with Joey Malfitano. Joey, how did you end up uh, signing with the Giants? Well, actually, David, I signed out of college. Uh, two outs at that time was uh, Ivo Pusic and Dutch Ritter. They were Giants. Uh, I, I guess I could have signed out of high school, but I really didn't know if to do that. So I went on to uh, Loyola University of Los Angeles, played there, scouted me, and then uh, after two years there, I decided I'd try this professional baseball, and uh, I did, and here I am. 61 and it. Did I ever think it was going to last this long? No, I did not. But I've had a wonderful time. I enjoy the game very much. And that's about it. That's how I choose. The Giants was, that was before the draft, David. There was no draft at that time. It was, uh, you were just subject to any club on to sign you. And the, I would have to say that the three teams that came after me were the Giants. Uh, White Sox and the Red Sox kind of heavily. And uh, so I chose the Giants because uh, of the scouts. I liked them. I felt comfortable with them. And uh, that's about it. Because you signed what was called a bonus contract back then where you got a certain amount of money and they had to keep you on the major league roster for a couple of years? That's correct. You not only were on the 40-man roster, you were on the 25, which is the 25 control. They control 40 players, 25 during the season. And because I received uh, over a $6,000 bonus, I had to stay with the parent team, which was the New York Giants. And I sat there two years. Didn't play very much. Played very little. But I watched and uh, listened and kind of got an idea of what my skills were. I knew what they were and what it would take for me to play in the major leagues. But when I was uh, sent to the minor leagues in 1956, having that in my mind, I practiced on it. And uh, after four years, the proudest thing I've done and whatever I've done in this game of baseball was to start at the top because of a rule 
and then go to the minor league. Most should have started, but the rules prevented that. And then they work the back in four years to go to the major leagues and stay around there for a number of years. And again, I just had a great time. What was Leo like as a manager? <laughs> Leo as a manager, as a player, oh, I never got to play. It was uh, tough, fair. He did not like mental mistakes. Physical mistakes he would tolerate, not to a great deal, but he was a, a, a very strategist, very good. And I ended up coaching for him. And here's a fellow who was frightened of, scared of, all of the above <laughs> for two years in New York. And then uh, I came back and uh, played for him a little bit in 1966 when he became the manager of the Cubs. And then he... Uh, wanted me to coach for him, and with, I, I had a nice, nice run because from that point, I had some wonderful years. What was it like playing in the polo grounds? Well, the polo grounds was, if you looked over over the top of it from an airplane or a copter, it was built in a horseshoe shape. And down the lines, it was uh, short, but it deepened into some dead center field, which Willie Mays in, in 1954 World Series against Cleveland made a miscatch that we still see every World Series in the highlights preceding the game. And uh, uh, it was a different park, and I think it created guys to uh, probably swing different there because of the short fences and wanting to hit home runs. Spacious in the outfield. I'm talking dead center field. It was a long way, uh, but uh, that that was that. I'm probably just doing the best I can. That's the way it was. Yeah, the bullpens were in left center, right center, in fair territory. If you want to believe that, uh, <laughs> that's there. Mays Mays made some great. Mays was the greatest player I've ever seen, and fortunately, I got to play with him. Uh, he made some spectacular catches in that ballpark. You had a great seat for that World Series, like you said. I mean, it's your rookie year. You watch Mays make that catch, and you get a World Series ring. That would be a dream come true for a young man back then. Well, I was in, uh, I was a bullpen catcher because, uh, well, that's I helped out. That's what we wanted me to do. That, that game, I was in the, the bullpen in right center field, and when the ball came off Dick Wirtz's bat, and as Willie tracked it, I, for me, he slowed his body down, which indicated to me he, he had it. And Willie always had that customary tap of his glove. And when he tapped that glove, means you were out. And he tapped that glove. And the, the amazing thing about it, he caught it and spun around and threw the ball into second base. I was one hop. But uh, there's a great picture of him on the ground with his hat off like he was doing push-ups, caught the ball with his back to the infield and then planted his right foot, spun around, and fired up the second base to keep the double play in order. It was a great catch. Well, like I said, that, that's showing every year uh, since I've been watching World Series play. And then I uh, occasionally get fan mail where I'll have a picture of that. It's uh, 
yeah, I, I got to witness that and several other famous uh, days in the game of baseball. And uh, I've been putting I've only said that three times now, but I've had a nice life. No, you did, and then you got to go into coaching. Did you always know you wanted to be a coach? I I, uh, I think being around the, the players that I was there watching 1954-55, on that team there were about four guys, I think, that became big league managers, actually, and uh, uh, the way that they played the game and used to talk about the game, uh, I think so, yeah. And uh, then when I uh, got uh, towards the end of my playing career, I fortunate again to to be in the right spot at the right time because Leo had gone over the Cubs and uh, in 1966, and that was my last year of playing. And he offered me this job, and uh, I couldn't ran with it. And it it's it's treating me very well, but I have seen myself that I had started studying the game early. I had my skills as a player weren't the best in the world and not the poorest, but I, I realized what I had to do to be a major leaguer. So when I went to the minor leagues, I practiced that. I disciplined myself. And, uh, I kind of played smart, I think. That's enough about me, but anyway, I've had a nice time. No, you're, you've had a great time. I mean, I remember as an eight-year-old watching you manage the Cubs in 79 here with my favorite <laughs> player, Dave Kingman, and you had Drew Suter, but you didn't have much else when you're managing the Cubs. Well, the Cubs at that time were in addition, uh, and uh, those players you just mentioned, um, Suter ended up in the Hall of Fame, and rightly so, and Kingman was uh, a power hitter, tremendous power. Uh, I think he 400-plus home runs, but uh, uh, they were in transition. Then the ownership changed, and uh, they went in a different uh, Not to say the direction we were headed. I, I think if we were to stay there, I got to see it, because the players that we had at that time, I feel that the majority of them were learning how to play big league baseball in the, you know, and they all do. Minor leagues, the biggest jumps, David, from amateur baseball to being a professional, and then I really believe from AAA to the major leagues, that's the next biggest jump. And sometimes you go, not sometimes, when you do come from AAA to major leagues, the majority of them have to learn how to play that major league baseball. And I think that uh, what helped me was going from AAA to the major leagues that I had witnessed it for two years, so I had an idea, which I said earlier in this interview, that I had to do. And uh, I wasn't going to be a player that, like a maze or, or a, a star that, you know, they carry the whole team on their back. I was just a little piece of the 25 pieces that are on that team. And I, I realized that. So I, I had to play I had to play smart. Then you joined my favorite team besides the Cubs with the Dodgers as a third base coach. How did you and Tommy get together? Well, I guess, uh, uh, I guess I guess he was to watch me coach third base when I was with the Cubs. And uh, then the position came open there. Uh, 
they asked me to come on board. Actually, the the, the fellow that wanted me over there was uh, Al Campanis and Tommy both. Both. Uh, I got a call from him, and they were going to make a change. And he asked if I was interested. Definitely was interested. And uh, thank God I I got the job, and I stayed there 17 years, coached at third base, probably uh, some of the best times of my baseball life, uh, being from San Pedro, and which is a port of Los Angeles, about 25 miles from the stadium, and my family and my friends there grew there, and to come back there to that environment, that was kind of special for me. Uh, and uh, I, again, that was a really a good time. And Vero Beach, Dodger Town, David, there's nothing better than Dodger Town when it comes to spring. All these facilities, which today the Cubs have an outstanding facility. I mean, it's beautiful. The facilities there are just great. But Dodger Town had a charisma about it. You know, there was a lot of togetherness there. I felt that the stability of the owner and that place carried through through the whole system. That's my belief. I mean, it was great being a part of that organization because, I mean, if you were a part of it, you were. I mean, they had Walter Alston and then Tommy Lasorda. I mean, they didn't go through managers or coaches. You were part of that family. Well, exactly right. That's what Peter O'Malley, who was the stability of that place, he made it family. That's very important. Where I am now with the Giants, it's the same thing. With Brian Sabian, now Bobby Evans, but over there, along with Brian Sabian's leadership, has made that way. It's very important. Everybody get on the same end of the rope and pull on it. Uh, that's part of the success of the Giants. A great deal of success. The players on that team, being with them this padding, they really pull for one another but the only family and the Dodgers was uh, unique single ownership I worked for single ownership in Chicago with the Wrigley family great people and Mr. Stoneham in San Francisco single ownership and then the O'Malley's and uh, that's not too not too common today it is but not as it was when I first started, but to experience that, it was special. It was special. Being with Tommy Lasorda, it'd be great too, because from hearing from the former players and coaches, you guys had the best food in the clubhouse, and going out to dinner with Tommy, <laughs> and going out to dinner with Tommy on the road, you never had to pay for a well, meal. Well, I don't know where you're getting your information, but part of that is true. But <laughs> Tommy, uh, uh, yeah, he enjoys food. <laughs> He enjoys being with people. I don't think Tommy, in my time, didn't get enough credit for his moves during a game. Uh, Tommy was a personality, and he was a, a person that when he came into a city, you know, a media and everybody wanted to talk because he uh, almost the face of the franchise. Follow me? Oh, yes. Whereas usually it's the player, but Tommy was the star. And, uh, but that, the reason he and I got along so well, not because we're both Italian, but it's because, like I said to him, 
I didn't want his job, and he didn't want mine. So that made it real good. You feel what I'm saying to me? There was no threat. He often told me in private when we would talk to us in his office that he he appreciated my loyalty and my honesty, which meant a lot to me. Follow me? No, exactly. Because you know what? Let me tell you something. When you trust somebody, you're be yourself. You just think of that. And even your listeners, whoever listens to this thing, trust someone, you're going to be yourself. Unfortunately, in this world, I don't think there's a whole lot of trauma right now. But anyway, that's my own philosophy. No, you're absolutely right. The other thing, you mentioned the Willie Mays catch in the 54 World Series. You're also part of another famous moment with Kirk Gibson with that home run. Yeah, yeah. Kirk, that's a, that's a nightmare, but... We got. To, we don't have that much more time. Anyway, Kirk nope. Gibson, the, the scouting report on Oakland was given the day before we opened the World Series in 1988, and we had three. There were three scouts that were on them for about six weeks, and uh, LDDA being one of them, Jerry Stevenson, and uh, Steve Boros. And uh, when we had the meeting, we, Tommy figured. We'd have the meeting, not the day of the game, but the day before because the players were a little bit relaxed and maybe they would retain what we were saying because there's a lot of excitement and nervousness in there. Follow me? Even though you played 160 games or whatever, if you don't get excited and nervous starting a game, then you're dead, in my opinion. you gotta, you got to – a perfect example of that is Hunter Pence with us. There's not a guy – I've never pl- seen a guy play with the energy and the enthusiasm that he plays with. There's guys that do it, but he shows it. Anyway, he truly, truly has a tip for the game. So now, at the end of the meeting, Tommy asked the scouts, have you got anything to add to the, because we went over every player, the pluses and minuses of the position players, the pitcher's best pitch, what pitch he liked to go to in a certain spot, and all that stuff that goes into it. And Mel DDA said, well, if the game is on the line and Eckersley is the pitcher and you're a left-hand hitter and you have three and two on you, he's going to throw you a backdoor slider. Well, that's exactly what happened. Gibson came up and hit. There was three and one on him, and uh, Mike Davis, Tommy had him steal, and they didn't throw, and and Gibson was in there. It was a call strike. It's made it three and two, and... Gibson was in the box, got out of the box, and I know standing down at third, I was going, come on, get in there, let's see where we are. And at the score at that time, we were one run down. And uh, he got out of the box, got back in there, got on his front foot, had it, kept his hand in his backpack, flipped it, home run. Conseco, I watched him, and he took like two steps back in right field and dodged him and his Body language told me that the ball was out of the ballpark, which made us a winner. Exactly. And uh, we went on in one in five games. Great moment in my non-playing career. How many World Series? I will never, ever forget. And when Gibson came around third base, I customarily would shake your hand and pat you on the back. I was excited. I patted him once. He was hobbling because he had a bad leg. I patted him twice. I was just about to let him go, and I'm hobbling with him. And he says, 
back door slider, Joe. I really got excited. I really hit him in the back. And I went upstairs. That was it. How many rings my did you hit? Tells me, my wife, Kate, tells me that those fans stood out there for 40 minutes on the feet of plot. In fact, I found out the next day that he had to go back outside to acknowledge it. How many rings that's, do you... Yeah, that's a great non-playing story for me, but that was... One of, I'll never forget that. And I get to see that, too. Uh, there's sometimes, uh, in a series, prior to the first game, they'll show this stuff, Mazes, Ketz, Gibson's home run, but uh, they, don't always, they don't always show him coming around third, I guess, the commercial aspect. But every once in a while, I'll see myself. And when I do, I call out to my way and say, Come out here and look at me. I'm in shape here. <laughs> How many rings do you have now? You got one from 54. You got one from the 88 World Series. Do you have three from the Giants, too? Five, yeah. Five. Five, yeah. And I think of God bless his soul, Ernie Banks. Yeah, then they have one, you know. Some great players, great players that uh, don't have any. And I said it earlier, I've been blessed here. Not in my mind, I have been blessed. I just wish you could have brought one to Chicago. Oh, well, that's good. I, I got to spend a little time with Joe Madden this uh, spring, and uh, I, I hope something good happens there. I really, truly do. I know I work for the Giants, and we've been good. They've been good. They have been good. But they have accomplished uh, it is good. And I hope Joe someday gets to experience that in that city, that team. I told him that. And it's, uh, let me, you know, a couple more minutes. The greatest thing for me about Wrigley Field is I didn't do this when I worked there as a coach or that little bit I managed or what I played. But when I became a coach with the Dodgers, I'd go there real early. I would take the trout and I'd have myself a little breakfast over there at Sheffield and then I'd go in, chart the previous game on a book. Now there's technology you don't have to bet. And I'd get a cup of coffee. I'd get the paper. I'd go down in the dugout. And I mean, I'm, David, I'm talking about early, okay? There isn't anybody in that place. And all of a sudden, Sparky, the activity with the ground crew, getting it ready for pregame practice, down on the left field corner over there, getting their instructions. And then the players starting to drift out. And one time I remember very early, Harry, Kay, and Vince Gully were taping. They were, Harry was inter- interviewing Vinny right in front of the dugout. And they were taping it. And then at 20 or 130, the first pitch, it went from one person to 30-something-thousand-plus. You know what? It's like seeing something or, or created in front of you. And I shared that with Joe. I told Joe, I said, when you get a chance, try to live that. It is, it's special. It was, it was special for me, okay? Oh, it is. Wrigley a- Field is really a beautiful place. No. Coaching third base was a lot of fun because the fans are right on top of you. <laughs> they, they can... They can show their pleasure or displeasure. And fortunately enough, when I worked there every day, I, I, I was blessed where I didn't get criticized too much. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to get to an interview we did with a guy who blocked for Joe Montana and made Joe Montana the great quarterback he became. 
former 49er Randy Cross. Stay tuned. You're listening to Sports and Torts here on TalkZone.com. 